Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 15, Joshua chapters 10 and 11. Joshua 10 is a story that's told on many levels. It is on the surface level the story of the conquest of Joshua, of the southerly part of the land of Canaan. On another level, it's the story of God's faithfulness to do what he promised he would do for Israel. Defeat the enemy ahead of Israel's army, thus assuring possession of the promised land by his covenant people. On yet another level, it demonstrates what happens when one is fully obedient to the Lord, when one does not fear the obstacles that the world throws in our way of attempting to carry out the Lord's commands, and that victory is always costly. And only rarely is it ever a smooth road. Now, as we read Joshua, we must therefore observe what happens in the context of not only the actual history of Israel being retold, but also the much larger context and much more important context of the never-changing God principles that are demonstrated in all of this process. Now, before we get back into the direct exegesis of Joshua, I'd like to take just a few moments to add another tidbit to our ongoing dialogue that I've had with you since that first day several years ago that we began Torah study together. And that dialogue is about how to study the Bible, regard its words, extract its meanings and principles. And this directly relates to Joshua because it's important that we look at Joshua from the proper perspective if we're going to glean from it what was intended. Now, it's become popular to study and debate the merits and principles of the Bible as though it's a book of sayings or proverbs from beginning to end. Okay. Proverbs are the ancient Hebrew equivalent of sound bites. And we have them in the secular world and we have them in the biblical world. Okay. Proverbs are truths told in short, usually general, and often greatly oversimplified terms so that they're easier to remember. Don't forget, the Bible was originally structured to be a spoken, not a written word. So memorization was central to its accurate transmission from generation to generation. Now, in order to make my point today, I'm going to use this illustration. Proverbs are somewhat akin in their purpose and use to the individual bones of the human body, an adult having 206 of them. Okay. A single bone taken alone and examined is indeed valid and has importance, but it's only truly useful and meaningful. Its function and purpose is only fully understood when it's viewed as a united member of a body and in its proper place. One single bone set aside and viewed in isolation 
is also not very indicative of the overall nature and substance of a human being to which it's part, even though that single bone can give us maybe some hints and clues. Now, while an entire skeleton, all 206 bones in their proper place, gives a real and discernible shape of a human being, yet a skeleton of its own is not a full picture. Matter of fact, it can't really even support life. Okay? As in the dramatic vision of Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones, by itself, skeleton bones form an inert framework and nothing more. It's not until we add internal organs, a brain, ligaments, muscles, flesh, and outer sensory organs, and then, of course, that supernatural breath of God, that we finally arrive with a complete and functioning person. Further, while a complete skeleton indeed gives us a general and standard shape of a human, the devil, as they say, is in the details, isn't it? I dare say that if all of us in this room were suddenly reduced to nothing but our skeletons, we'd lose the ability to identify even our own spouses or children. Right? Because it's the millions of subtleties of what grows upon these bony frames right, that makes us recognizable to one another and operational for the purposes we were created. Now, just as I have metaphorically compared biblical proverbs as individual skeletal bones, so in Christian discussion and debate, it is that individual phrases and verses plucked out of our Bibles have become regarded in the same way as proverbs. Sayings that can be taken as is, without context, as a complete and final thought. Now, while there is certainly truth in those individual scriptural phrases and verses, to, draw, to try and draw too much of a conclusion from one or two, or to try and regard a verse or phrase as sufficient of itself to stand alone, is a pretty dangerous and self-deceiving activity. Okay. Or more to the point, it's all too common in our Judeo-Christian struggles over theological principles that we like to play this never-ending game of my verse is better than your verse. Okay. Take any given subject and usually we can find contradiction and enormous differences in the Bible if we essentially make a verse or two into a proverb and then hold it up against another. Using my skeleton illustration, How useful is it for us to argue? My finger bone is a much truer picture of what a human being looks like and how he functions than your toe bone. In fact, how much can we actually discern if we were to take an entire human hand bone structure and try to extrapolate only from it what a full human skeleton looks like? Because I could just as easily grab an entire foot bone structure and argue that it much better represents the human form. Who'd be right? See, the Lord was very wise and merciful in the way he gave us his word of truth. He didn't show us 
one bone and tell us that's all we need to know. Or that this one bone with all the others aren't really needed to define who he is, who we are, what our relationship is, the plan he has for us. He also didn't throw those 206 bones in a pile and say, you figure it out. And thankfully, he didn't give us a box full of internal organs, another one with our skin suit in it, a container full of ligaments, a bucket with our, cell, our sensory organs, and say, use your imaginations. Rather, he built principle upon principle in a precise order that fit together just so. And then he gives us examples of the meaning and effect of these principles he's put together at work and how they operate, connected, combined with others of his principles that eventually forms a much more complete picture. By means of divine inspiration in the stories of real people in real situations in the Bible, the Lord told us what it was all working towards. And he even gave us an example of the lifestyle we should lead while the Lord was unfolding his plan. He told us what pleased him, what didn't, what works, what doesn't in his economy. If we want to actually understand the Bible, we have to always look at it as a whole. Not a collection of pieces that can be connected in any number of ways or occur in any order. We also can't separate out a tiny piece or two and have it stand as representative of the whole. Nor can we intentionally throw away or ignore bits and pieces that when looked at individually and without regard to the whole seem to even be redundant or contradict other bits and pieces. So I think we have come to the point after all this time of studying together, that I want to say this to you in the strongest possible terms. Don't challenge one another based on one or two verses that you prefer to all others because it's your final, you think it's the final word on any given subject. It's that mindset that has led to the concept of doctrinal based as opposed to scriptural based Christianity. Our guest last night talked about that quite a bit. And the result of it is the myriads of denominations that we see. The Bible is not structured that way. It was never intended to be used that way. Even the extensive law of Moses that the Lord set out with a list of 613 negative and positive commandments doesn't give us a full enough picture so now Moses gave Israel his sermon on the mount in Moab and then the father goes on to give us many examples in the form of stories and narratives to follow or in some cases avoid right? and he developed patterns so that we could discern whether what we're thinking about what he was saying actually fits his intentions there are no shortcuts to learning or discussing God's principles and tossing isolated verses back and forth at one another in order to defend or uphold some doctrine we've adopted is simply not useful. 
Rather, it's essential that once a person has become a believer, that he earnestly studies God's word beginning at the beginning. With the only preconceived notion being that it's all the truth. It's vital that we assemble the whole truth of God in the order it was given, employing all the parts and pieces and discarding none of them. So now let's get back to Joshua and see both the history of Israel unfold and the playing out of God's principles as they move from theory into practice. Open your Bibles to Joshua Chapter 10, we're going to read from verse 15 to the end. That would be page 252 if you have the complete Jewish Bible. Yeshua returned with all, with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. But those five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Machedah. And it was reported to Yahshua that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave at Machedah. And Joshua said, Roll big stones to the mouth of the cave. Put men in there to guard them. However, you don't wait. Just keep chasing your enemies and attack those farthest in the rear. Don't allow them to return to their cities because Adonai has handed them over to you. After Joshua and the people of Israel had finished killing them off in a very great slaughter till they'd all been destroyed and the remaining remnant had entered their fortified cities, all the people returned safely to Joshua at the camp at Machedah and no one said a word against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, open up the mouth of the cave, bring those five kings out of the cave to me. And they did it. And they brought the five kings out to him, the kings of Yerushalayim, Hebron, Yarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. And after they had brought the five kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the commanders of the soldiers who had gone with him, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. They came and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Now don't be afraid or confused, but be strong and bold, because this is what Adonai is going to do with all your enemies that you fight against. And with that, Joshua struck them and put them to death, hanging them on five trees, where they remained hanging until evening. And at sunset, Joshua gave an order. And they lowered them from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, then laid big stones at the mouth of the cave, and there they remain to this day. Joshua captured Machedah that day, defeating it and its king by the sword. He completely destroyed them, everyone there. He left no one. And he did to the king of Machedah what he had done to the king of Jericho. And Joshua went on from Machedah and all Israel with him to Libna. And he fought against Libna. And Adonai handed it and its king over to Israel. And he defeated it with the sword, everyone there. He left no one. He did to its king what he had done to the king of Jericho. Joshua went on from Libna and all Israel with him to Lachish. And he pitched camp against it and fought against it. And Adonai handed it over to Israel. He captured it the second day. He defeated it with the sword. Everyone there. Exactly as he'd done to Libna. But then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish. So Joshua attacked him and his people. Tell he had no one left with him. Joshua went on from Lachish and all Israel with him to Eglon. And he pitched camp against it and fought against it. And they captured it that very day. He defeated it with the sword, completely destroying everyone there, exactly as he'd done to Lachish. Joshua went up against Eglon and all Israel with him to Hebron. 
And they fought against it. They captured it, defeating it with the sword, including its king, its villages, everyone there. He left no one, exactly as he'd done to Eglon, but he completely destroyed it and everyone there. Joshua turned back and all of Israel with him to Debir and fought against it. And they captured it, its king, all its villages, defeating them with the sword and utterly destroying everyone there. He left no one. He did to Debir and its king as he'd done to Hebron and as he'd done to Libnah and its king. So Joshua attacked all the land, the hills, the Negev, the Sheflah, and the mountain slopes, and all their kings. He left none, but completely destroyed everything that breathed, as Adonai, the God of Israel, had ordered. Joshua attacked them from Kadesh, Barnea, to Hazah, and to the land of Goshen, as far as Gibeon. Joshua captured all these kings and their land all at the same time because Adonai, the God of Israel, fought on Israel's behalf. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Well, Joshua and the Israelite army soundly defeated the southern Canaanite coalition forces and the kings who headed up the defeated forces fled the scene to try and save their own lives. And they stole away from um, Joshua to a place called Machedah and they hid in a cave there but they were soon found and Joshua was informed of it now Joshua was currently with his troops and their families at the semi-permanent Israelite encampment of uh, Gilgal up up to the north so he traveled southwest down to Machedah and there ordered the five kings to be sealed inside their hiding place using large rocks to cover the mouth of the cave. Now the jail would have been guarded by some soldiers until Joshua had finished off as many of the coalition's defeated troops as he could. Priority number one was to destroy the enemy armies. Dealing with the captured kings could wait. Now, basically, Joshua's orders of verse 19 were for the Israeli forces to move rapidly and catch up to the various groups of surviving enemy soldiers. And starting at the rear of the columns, slaughter them. Now, Israel would have divided their forces into several groups because each of these five armies had different destinations when they fled. The hope was that by attacking the enemy in this way, it would be like eating a a stalk of celery. You start chomping at the bottom and work your way up to the tip. In other words, Joshua didn't think that his various battalions of troops had the time to beat those five armies back to their fortified cities and then cut them off. Rather, Israel would start attacking at the rear And as soon as they caught up to them, they'd move their way and fight their way forward, hoping to get to the front of the column in order to kill them all off, and then, of course, prevent them from getting to their walled cities. But we find out in verse 20 that while Israel got most of them, some of the enemies still got back to safety. Now, we really don't know exactly how much time elapsed when the five-king coalition attacked Israel to when the fighting stopped, And then Joshua finally dealt with those five kings. It could have been a few days, several weeks, more. We're not for sure. Although the tone of the narrative seems to make it seem as though this all happened in a couple of days. It's it's really only the typical Hebrew Old Testament biblical way of recording things that makes it kind of seem that way. Time wasn't all that important. 
Exactly what happened in what order wasn't always important. But when it was, it was made very clear. Well, back in verse 15, we're told that after the main battle at Gibeon, Joshua and all of his fighting men then returned to their home base at Gilgal. So it's not like the battle of Gibeon just continued on with the pursuit of the now fractured and divided enemy forces. A wonderful God principle is at play here. After their missteps at Ai, and then making peace with Gibeon, Israel finally determined to obey the Lord and do it his way from then on. Thus they handily defeated that army of the five kings, and now their reward was not only swift victory, but they were ushered safely back to home and family. They returned to their camp where they had wholeness and safety and health awaiting them. Battle was not Israel's natural state that God had intended for them. Shalom was their natural state. Obedience brought them more quickly back to the goal of safety and security and peace and this is a reward and gift from God. Yet we as modern day believers must learn a very hard lesson from this. A lesson that Joshua and his fighting men learned happily sooner than later. When God says that he has already turned the enemy over to them, it doesn't mean that Israel can now sit in the comfort and ease of their camp, pray and praise the Lord, and just wait for the enemy to surrender. It was Israel's job to go and claim that victory that the Lord had already given to them. But to claim it meant to battle for it. To claim it meant lives had to be risked, injuries endured, hardships experienced, fears overcome. The Lord gives us fertile fields for growing food, but we must plant the crops and guard them from weeds and pests. God's amazing processes cause those seeds to germinate, the rains to fall, the plants to grow, and the grain to ripen. But we have to go to the fields and harvest the results, gather it, winnow it, and then prepare it for either storage or immediate consumption. God has his part. We have our part. That's the very definition of a relationship, isn't it? Our part, though, is not simply to watch as God does his part. Even at Jericho, when the walls fell by supernatural command and not because of a siege, Israel was still required to crawl over that rubble and put the inhabitants of Jericho to the sword. The inhabitants would have resisted. Israel didn't come out unscathed. You see, victory comes at a cost, even though the Lord has assured it. Obedience leads us to victory. Disobedience leads us to defeat. Either way, personal risks must be taken and casualties will happen. To claim a victory doesn't mean to only sit and pray. It doesn't mean, as is too often practiced in the modern church, 
that we raise our hands and shout with assuredness, Lord, we claim this victory over sickness. Or we claim this victory over evil. And then that's the sum total of our effort. Sitting and praying is the equivalent in Joshua of seeking the Lord's counsel. This is but the necessary and obedient preliminary step. Asking God what to do, how to do it, comes first. But after the sitting and the praying and his counsel is given, it's time for action. And the action can mean life-threatening challenges. It can mean very fearful encounters. It can mean opening up our lives for a change that may or may not meet our expectations. But why would we expect divine victory to be easy and painless in this world? God's own Son went through hell in order to give us heaven. But in the end, it was all victory. Our difficult task is to see it as God sees it. Well, after chasing the remnants of these five defeated armies, the Israelites once again returned for a little R&R. But this time, verse 21 has the Israelite troops at Makedah. Now, some scholars find this to be in conflict with the statement just six verses earlier when it says the Israelite troops returned to their encampment at Gilgal. Now, I, I think we're dealing with a tempest in a teapot in this. It was normal then, just like it is now, to set up temporary bases as troops moved further away from their home location. Gilgal was home base at this time. Makedah was a temporary base for the troops involved in the current foray. The bulk of Israel probably remained in Gilgal. Those troops chosen to give chase to the enemy survivors had a remote base set up at Makedah where Joshua had decided to bivouac while waiting to deal with those five kings. Now the end of verse 21 says that no one said a word against the people of Israel when they returned. What it literally says is, but against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog wet his tongue. That little odd statement is a Hebrew idiom. And it means that the returning troops didn't encounter any hostility on their way back, nor upon entering the Makedah area. None of the friends and allies of those five kings dared to harass Israel. And none of the residents of the city of Makedah, the namesake and location of that cave where those five kings were now imprisoned, made any trouble for Israel. They were just too afraid. Well, the time of reckoning is at hand. Joshua now orders those five kings brought to him. I mean, what a regal parade that must have been. Imagine, imagine the kings of Jerusalem, Jebus at this time, Hebron, Yarmouth, Lachish, Eglon, arrayed before Joshua, knowing what awaited them. First humiliation, then death. Joshua would use these kings to make a point. He calls his officers forward. 
he had the kings lay prostrate on the ground before him. And then each in turn, Israel's army commanders put their foot on the necks of these kings. Now I know this sounds barbaric, but it wasn't about stomping on the king's backs or necks to cause injury. It was just a standard Middle Eastern symbol to indicate to all present just who ruled over who. Okay. For a common Israelite to put their foot on the neck of royalty was probably pretty intimidating for Joshua's officers. Kings were held high. They were greatly revered and feared. It was commonly understood that they were more than human. The kings were connected to the gods. And some would become gods upon their deaths. But at the same time, it demonstrated to those who placed their foot on the neck of the kings, to all the younger officers who were present and watching all this happen, that it was Israel, and by default, Israel's God, who was superior, despite the title of king that these men had bestowed upon themselves. In fact, Joshua needed to exhort his officers to come forward and engage in this symbolic gesture by telling them, don't be afraid, don't be confused, which means they were a little bit reluctant to do this. Well, immediately thereafter, Joshua had the five kings executed and their bodies impaled on wooden poles. Now, even though most versions say they were hung on a tree, this hanging doesn't mean with a rope around their necks. Right. And the Hebrew word for tree and for wood is the same, eights. Okay. Rather, as, as was customary and pictured on several ancient Assyrian reliefs, this meant being killed, to be hung. Right. To be killed and then the lifeless body hung on a pole. This act of impalement, since time immemorial, was an oriental symbolic gesture that meant the condemned person was also cursed. Okay. In fact, we see the Hebrews agree with that concept and perfectly understand the meaning of being hung, impaled, on a tree as indicating that that person was cursed, which by definition means being cursed by a god. Deuteronomy 21.22 If someone has committed a capital crime and is put to death, then hung on a tree, his body is not to remain all night on the tree. But you must bury him the same day because a person who has been hanged has been cursed by God so that you will not defile your land which Adonai your God is giving you to inherit. This law from Deuteronomy is why we read in verse 27 of Joshua 10 that at sunset meaning before the current day ended the king's bodies had to be removed from these death stakes and thrown back into the same cave where they'd been found hiding now this understanding about the correlation between being impaled on a pole or a tree or, and being cursed by God didn't change much over time listen to Paul in Galatians Galatians 3.13 The Messiah redeemed us from the curse pronounced in the Torah by becoming cursed on our behalf. For the Tanakh says, everyone who hangs from a stake comes under a curse. See, it doesn't matter 
that the form of the wood that a condemned person hung from was shaped like a pole or a cross, or whether they were impaled through their bodies or through their hands and their feet, like Yeshua. Their tradition was that impalement on a wooden device indicated that that person's God had also condemned that person and cursed them. Verse 28 explains that once the execution ceremony was completed, the Israelites attacked the city of Machedah, where part of the Israelite army was now encamped and killed its king. There were seven cities located in the general region of Machedah. Machedah proper, the city of Machedah, Lidna, Lachish, uh, Gezer, uh, Eglon, uh, Hebron, and Debir. And in turn, each of these cities was attacked and various descriptions are given to us as exactly how each city was treated. The long and the short of it is that the people were killed, the possessions and the livestock were taken as spoils for Israel. And a large portion of the southern half of Canaan was now, as a result, under Israeli control. Now, part of the reason that so much ink is devoted to going through the treatment of each one of these cities, one by one, and explaining what happened was to emphasize that Joshua and his men did exactly as they had been instructed by the Lord through Moses. Quick reminder. The instructions all had to do with the protocol that God had established for holy war. And in holy war, all the spoils belonged to the Lord. And since it all belonged to him, he determined what of the spoils would remain as devoted to him and what the people of Israel could take for their personal use. That which was devoted to the Lord became literally holy property. That which Israel could possess became desanctified. That's a word. Non-holy. And thus it was safe for Israel to appropriate the first city taken by Israel was what? Jericho. It was a special case because it was the first fruits of the people and the property of the land of Canaan. Therefore, the Lord kept everything from Jericho for himself. Keeping everything means, generally speaking, that everything was deemed as holy. Thus, it was destroyed or burned up. However, beginning with I, which was the second city taken, we see that only the structures and the enemy people were to be God's spoils. Pretty much everything else the Israelites could have. But the only way something could become God's and given to God for his exclusive use was for it to be destroyed and usually burned up into ashes. So the point in the final 12 or 13 verses of Joshua 10 is to show that Israel had learned their lesson. They understood that God meant what he said concerning the laws of holy war, the laws of harem. And so scrupulously obeyed those laws in the conquering of southern Canaan. But we're going to see a very heavy implication in chapter 11 that Israel may not have destroyed and burned some of those southern cities. If that is the case, then they did not perfectly obey God, despite their claim that they did. But apparently they did so well enough that the Lord didn't punish them for their imperfection. 
Now verses 40 to 43 offers a summation of the southern attack. And it outlines the area that was affected um, by Israel. It was from Kadesh Barnea uh, to the city of Gaza. Yeah, the Gaza that we see up every day in the news. That Gaza. Okay, and then east over to Gibeon. It also speaks of the land of Goshen. Sound familiar? It's not the same one. It's not the same land of Goshen that Israel lived in while in Egypt. It's just named the same, which is a very common occurrence. Now, there's a lot of disagreement on the the exact location of these cities. So, where you see them on the maps is just an approximation. Well, the chapter ends with Joshua and his fighting men returning to their main encampment at Gilgal where the tabernacle was set up and the sanctuary rituals and sacrifices and the services of the high priest and the common priest and all the Levites and so on would go on for decades. Gilgal then was the original semi-permanent location for the wilderness tabernacle in the land of Canaan. Many years later, it would be moved. And for many more years, it would, re, re, would reside in Shiloh, Shiloh. Now, what's important to grasp is that wherever the sanctuary of God was resting, there was the most important place for the Israelites. There was where they went for their pilgrimage festivals. There is where they went to present their sacrifices. There is where they went to take their firstborn sons to redeem them. When God called for a holy convocation of Israel for decades and decades after crossing the Jordan, that place was at first Gilgal. It would be about three centuries before Jerusalem would finally take on that especially holy status by moving the priesthood and the sanctuary there to Mount Moriah. Let's move on to chapter 11. Just going to read the first few verses here. When Yavin king of Hazor heard of it, he informed Yovav king of Medon the king of Shimron, the king of Akshaf, the kings to the north in the hills, in the Arabah south of Kinnerot, and in the Shephelah in the regions of Dor on the west. The Canaanite to the east and the west, the Amori, the Hiti, the Prezi, and the Yavusi in the hills, and the Hivi at the foot of Hermon in the land of Mitzpah. So they set out, they and all their armies, many people, in numbers like the sand at the seashore with their very many horses and chariots. All these kings met together. They came and they pitched camp together at Meron Spring to fight Israel. Okay. Just as chapter 10 was the historical and theological story of the conquering of, the southern, of southern Canaan. Chapter 11 is the story of the conquering of the northern areas of Canaan. And is obvious by the reading, chapters 10 and 11 form one unit. The chapter division between the two probably shouldn't be there. All right, from a literary and historical viewpoint. Further, we see both a historical and a theological pattern 
develop between these two chapters. Historically, we see another coalition of kings develop, a northern coalition, and their city-states together try and thwart the invading Israelite army from overtaking their many kingdoms, basically mimicking what had just happened down in the south. And theologically, we see the pattern of God instructing Joshua and then promising victory. Joshua obeying and then going off to instruct Israel. Israel obeying and thus victory is achieved by means of battle. The chapter begins with the king of Hazor receiving intelligence of what had happened in the south and of this stunning defeat of the five army coalition and destruction of many major Canaanite cities and their inhabitants by these Israeli forces. And so the king of Hazor forms an alliance with the kings of Madon, Shimron, Achshaf, and other kings up in the northern regions of Canaan. Now this is a military alliance with the purpose of attacking Israel before Israel can gain a foothold in the northern territories. Now, it's interesting to me that in the recently completed southern campaign, and now up in the north of Canaan, it was the Canaanites who ignited the battle. They had heard of Israel's intentions. They believed it thoroughly. And so they responded with a preemptive strike. Now, this raises the question, why did Joshua... Or was it God? Wait for the enemy to strike Israel's forces before they carried out the Lord's standing order to take Canaan for its inheritance. Now, I'm not sure there's a good theological answer to this, but there's a good human behavioral answer. Israel's army and leaders were reluctant. They were in no hurry to subject themselves to more war and the accompanying hardships and injury and death. Likely a great deal of procrastination on Israel's part would have led to the Canaanite forces more thoroughly being able to ready themselves and making it all the more difficult to route route them out of their strongholds. And the Lord knew Israel pretty well. Further, it was really in Israel's best interests that the response of these various major city-states in Canaan was to band together and leave the relative safety and security of their fortresses to engage Israel out into the open. I mean, it kind of validates the old cliche of providing an opportunity for Israel to kill many birds with one stone. If these various kings from all over Canaan had decided on a strategy of relying on the impenetrability of the high and thick walls, the strong defensive positions, usually these walled cities were on elevated land and hilltops, the war of the conquest would have gone on for much longer than it did. Because each and every city would have required a lengthy siege by Israel to take it. So, much as like the Lord dealt with Egypt's Pharaoh, he put a hardness, we're told. 
in the hearts of these Canaanite kings and a foolhardy arrogance in their minds. And so God literally drew them out of their barricaded strongholds into a place where he could have them slain in one major stroke. The point being that not only was there a supernatural influence exerted by Jehovah upon Joshua and the army of God, but also upon the enemy. There is, this represents another pattern that emerges from the Tanakh, the Old Testament, that never changes. Now watch. We'll finish this up today. We'll finish up with this today. Watch as the Lord uses this exact device of pulling mighty armies foolishly, arrogantly. They come away from their home bases and strongholds so they can be destroyed in one decisive battle. Open your Bibles to Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38, if you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 692. We're going to read all of 38 and just a couple of verses of 39. The word of Adonai came to me. Human being, turn your face towards Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Say that Adonai Elohim says, I'm against you, Gog. Chief Prince of Meshach and Tuval. I will turn you around. I'll put hooks in your jaws. I'll bring you out with all your armies and horses and horsemen all completely equipped. A great horde with breastplates and shields all wielding swords. Okay. Paras, uh, which is a Persia. Ethiopia and Put are with them, all with their breastplates and helmets. Gomer with all his troops. The house of uh, Togarmah, right, in the far reaches of the north with all of its troops. Many peoples are with you. Prepare yourself. Get ready. You and all your crowd gathered around you and take charge of them. After many days have passed, you will be mustered for service. In later years, you'll invade the land, which has been brought back from the sword, gathered out of many peoples, the mountains of Israel. They had been lying in ruins for a long time, but now Israel has been extracted from the peoples and all of them are living there securely. You will come up upon them like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops, and many other peoples with you. Adonai Elohim says, when that day comes, thoughts are going to well up in your minds and you're going to devise a sinister scheme. And you're going to say, I'm going to invade this land of unwalled villages. I'll take by surprise these people who are at peace, living securely, all in places without walls or bars or gates. I will seize the spoil and take the plunder. You will attack the former ruins that are now inhabited and come against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and other wealth and are living in the central parts of the land. Shivar, Dan, the leading merchants of Tarshish will ask you, have you come to seize spoil? Have you assembled your hordes to loot, to carry off silver, gold, livestock, and other wealth to take such plunder? Therefore, human being, prophesy, tell God that Adonai Elohim says, 
Won't you be aware of it when my people Israel are living in security? You will choose just that time to come from your place in the far reaches of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them on horseback, a huge horde, a mighty army, and you'll invade my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. This will be in the Ahirat Hayamin, time to come. It will bring you against my land so that the Goyim, Gentiles, the Gentile nations of the world, will know me when before their eyes I'm set apart as holy through you, Gog. Adonai Elohim says, I spoke of you long ago through my servants, the prophets of Israel. Back then they prophesied for many years that I would have you invade them. I would have you invade them. When that day comes, when Gog invades the land of Israel, says Adonai Elohim, my furious anger will boil up in my jealousy. In my heated fury I speak. When that day comes, there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. So that the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the wild beasts, all the reptiles creeping on the ground, every human being there in the land will tremble before me. Mountains will fall. Cliffs crumble. Every wall crash to the ground. I'll summon a sword against him throughout all my mountains, says Adonai Elohim. Every man will wield his sword against his brother. I will judge him with plague and with blood. I will cause torrential rain to fall on him. His troops and the many peoples along with him, along with huge hailstones and fire and sulfur. I will show my greatness and holiness, making myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I'm at an eye. Continuing in chapter 39. So you, human being, prophesy against Gog. Say that Adonai Elohim says, I, will, I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshal and Tuval. Okay. I will turn you around, lead you on, bring you from the far reaches of the north against the mountains of Israel. But then, I'll knock your bow out of your left hand and make your arrows drop from your right. You'll fall on the mountains of Israel, you and your troops and all the peoples with you. I will give you to be eaten up by all kinds of birds of prey and wild animals. You will fall in the open field. For I've spoken, says Adonai Elohim. The Lord will draw the enemies of Israel out into the open and that's how they'll be destroyed. Just like the conquest of Canaan. We'll continue with Joshua chapter 11 next time.